You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Uh, okay, we're going to be in Psalm 109, and so I want to read that to you before we get going this morning. So Psalm 109. So if you want to turn there and uh, put your seatbelt on, because it's a little hairy, and we're going to read it together. Psalm 109, starting in verse 1. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Verse 6, Psalm 109. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but he pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, so let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. Verse 21. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because if your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them, uh, let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right, at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Father, I pray that you would take this hard word, this uncomfortable word, and Father, you would bring it to life for us today and we would see you in it. So God, would you now come and help us do that? 
It's in your good name we ask it. Amen. Okay, before we jump into the weeds of a particular psalm today, I want to take a step back and say something about the psalms in general, because this is the last Sunday that we're going to be in this set of sermons uh, in the psalms. And here, here's what I want to make sure before we do anything else that you see this morning. Let me just pose it as a question and an answer. Here's the question. If someone were to come to you and ask the question, what role have the psalms played in the history of God's people? So what if, what, you know, what's the primary way that God's used the Psalms in the life of his people through church history? What would you say to that? How would you answer that? I mean, there's a lot of things you could say, but let me give one thing that you need to say in answer to that question. What role have the Psalms played in the history of God's people? One answer is this. The Psalms are the primary tool God uses to teach his people to pray. They're the primary way that God takes his people and forms them into a praying people. I can, if your heart this morning says to the Lord, I want to grow in prayer, and I hope it does. I hope you're saying that somewhere deep inside you. The Psalms are the primary tools that God has given you to become that, to by his grace grow up in that. Listen to Eugene Peterson in his book, Answering God. It's a, his book on the Psalms. Listen to him talk about this. He says it this way. He says, the consensus on this throughout the church's praying life is impressive. If we wish to develop in the life of faith, to mature in our humanity, and to glorify God with our entire heart, mind, soul, and strength, the Psalms are necessary. We cannot bypass the Psalms. They are God's gift to train us in prayer that is both comprehensive and honest. And honest is opposed to a series of more or less sincere verbal poses that we think might please the Lord. So this is the way that we grow in comprehensive and honest prayer, not just saying prayers. He goes on. If we are willingly ignorant of the Psalms, we are not thereby excluded from praying, but we will have to hack our way through formidable country by trial and error and with inferior tools. In other words, he's saying, if you want to try to grow in prayer and you don't use the Psalms, good luck. It's hard work. You're in formidable, hard country and you're not using the best tools. But he's saying the Psalms are the tools to hack through the country for you to grow up in prayer. Now comes the question, well, how would we grow in prayer? How would we use the Psalm to be formed by God into a praying people? Listen to what he says. The practice of Christians in praying the Psalms is straightforward. Simply pray through the Psalms, Psalm by Psalm, regularly. That's it. Open our Bibles to the book of the Psalms and pray them sequentially, regularly, faithfully across a lifetime. This is how most Christians for most of the Christian centuries have matured in prayer. Nothing fancy. He lends by saying this, just do it. And I want to start by saying and encouraging you toward that. Just do that. Just imagine the fruit that would be born if every day we would open up to the Psalms and we would pray that Psalm to the Lord. Think of how we would be forming and growing and maturing in our prayer life. And I want to encourage you to do that. Maybe you take one in the morning and one in the evening. Maybe it's just one a day on your commute, whatever it is, but that you would on a regular systematic basis, start in Psalm 1, open it up, read that, and then turn that into prayer to God. This is how most Christians throughout most of Christian history have grown up in their prayer life. And by God's grace, wouldn't it be great if we were a part of that? Now, 
as you're doing that, as you're opening up the Psalms and you're reading that and turning that into prayer, you're going to find so many wonderful Psalms and so many verses within it that are going to encourage you. You're going you're gonna to find yourself in Psalm 23 eventually, and you're going to hear the psalmist say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. You're going to be comforted by that. You're going to get to Psalm 42 and you're going to hear the psalmist say, but as the deer pants for the water, so my soul beats and pants after God. You're going to get to Psalm 56 and you're going to be so encouraged when you're struggling with fear. When you hear the psalmist say, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In you, God, in whose word I praise, I will not be afraid for what can flesh do to me. You're going to find so much comfort there as you do that. But you're also going to find things that are really disturbing. Things are going to upend you, disorient you. Things that you're probably not even going to like as you read them. As a for instance, you're going to come across Psalm 10, verse 15. As the psalmist prays to God, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. You're going to come across Psalm 58, 6. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Psalm 58, verse 8. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. You're going to come across things like Psalm 83, 15. And, ter and terrify them with your hurricane. Or Psalm 109 that we just read, verses 8 through 11. May my enemies, may his days be few. May another take his office, verse 9. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food from far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. You're going to come across those things in the psalm. Now, when I turn to the psalms, I am not expecting to hear that. I am not expecting to hear a person pray to God, God, knock the teeth out of their mouth. That, I mean, that is not what I'm expecting to see in the Psalms. That is not it. But we find things we're not expecting in the Psalms. We find surprising things in the Psalms. We find in the Psalms that God is unquestionably the primary subject. That's not surprising. But what is surprising in the Psalms is that we find that enemies are firmly established in second place. That there is a lot of talk about enemies and what God should do about them in the Psalms. There's over 100 verses in the Psalms that deal with enemies and what God should do about them. There's 14 Psalms out of the 150 that, that would fit into the category of what is called imprecatory Psalms. That is like Psalms that are cursing enemies. Like Psalms that their primary subject is, God, would you do something about the evil around me? God, would you do whatever it takes to make it stop? God, would you please abolish these enemies right now? 14 of the Psalms are going to be Psalms that fit into that category who that is their main theme. So that begs the question, what in the world are we supposed to do about that? Like, what, what do we do when we read the psalm? How do we fit this into the, to the grand scheme of what the Bible has to say to us? Now, let me just say one thing by disclaimer really quickly. 
Uh, here's the disclaimer. There are some sermons when you start them, you know that you are opening up a can of worms and you're dumping them out on the floor. And in the span of 30 or 40 minutes, there is no way you're putting every worm back in the can. This is one of those sermons, all right? So I can't say everything there is to say about this issue or this topic. I'm gonna say some things that I hope are helpful. If you want more, please email me. I would love to give you a lot of great resources that I think would be really helpful. But disclaimer, I cannot say everything this morning and there's gonna be things left unsaid that I wish I had time to say. But, but how have people tried to deal with these songs? Let me just give you three broad categories of how people have tried to deal with them. Number one, some people try to cut them out of the Bible. They would just prefer them not be there. This group of people would look at these psalms, uh, these, these imprecatory psalms, these, these you know, utterances, uh, cur- you know, where the psalmist is cursing his enemies. They would look at that and say that this is only, these psalms are only um, evil pouring forth from the psalmist. There's nothing in there to be modeled or used. They are just sinful expressions. Uh, one of the, my favorite people in church history, C.S. Lewis, that was how he thought about them. When he thought about these sort of psalms, the imprecatory psalms, he thought of them as sub-Christian. I think one of the reasons that a lot of, you, most people in the room have probably never heard a sermon on an imprecatory psalm like Psalm 109. I've never heard a sermon on that. And the, the, one of the reasons is because most pastors don't know what to do with those things. So we just kind of take a step back and avoid it. It may not be sub-Christian to our mindset, but we definitely don't know what to do. So we just kind of push it away. It's interesting, some of the, uh, the books that help people grow in prayer through the Psalms. So they're gonna take Psalms and just help you systematically pray through the Psalms. When they get to these Psalms, they just leave them out or they cut out the, the sort of parts that kind of offend our sensibilities. They just kind of leave those alone and think, well, we just won't pray that. We'll just pray the other parts of the Psalms. So there is a category that just says, we're going to avoid these things. Another uh, kind of approach that people have taken to these Psalms are that they try in some form or fashion to tone them down. To just kind of dilute kind of what they appear to say a little bit. Some of my favorite people in church history kind of take this approach. Charles Spurgeon, my favorite preacher in church history, he, his kind of approach to these Psalms was to allegorize them. Surely he's not talking about actual enemies that he actually has down here on earth. Surely he is talking about like spiritual enemies like Satan, sin, and death. That's who he's really cursing here. The only problem with that is he actually names physical enemies down here on earth, Right? Uh, another way to kind of tone that down is to say that these were a right, proper expression, maybe from an Old Testament saint, but never on this side of the cross from a New Testament Christian. Um, the only problem with that is we find these same sort of imprecatory moments in the New Testament. Mark 11, it's Jesus doing that. In Galatians chapter 1, that, yeah, find Paul doing that. In uh, Roman, or, uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, you see the same sort of moments in various other places in the New Testament. So I don't think that gets us kind of out of how do we work with these psalms. Uh, another kind of group of people will look at these psalms, another way to kind of tone them down is to say that, you know, these are, these are instances of God tolerating the expression of a human fallen heart, but in no way, shape, or form does God like approve of those things. So God, yes, God loves for us to pray honestly before him, but he doesn't approve necessarily of everything that we're saying. Now, what all of those kind of approaches have in common is they're, they're toning down what it seems the psalmist is actually doing, right? So it's the, the tone it down sort of approach. And then the third one, would, would be this. Under certain extreme circumstances, some would look at the imprecatory psalms and say, 
it could be right in these extreme few circumstances to use them as a model for how we might pray to the Lord. So, so this group is saying that they're not just like wrong expressions that God tolerates, but under certain circumstances, maybe you could think of it in terms of like extraordinary evil with a long-term hardness of heart and hatred to God, and you're powerless to do anything about it, under a few certain situations like that, it could actually be appropriate to pray a psalm like this. Now, to put my cards on the table, with a lot of fear and trembling, I would, I would put myself in that third category of under a few, and I want to emphasize a few extreme, desperate, terrible circumstances that, that a moment like this could be right off the lips of a Christian. Now, even in saying that, I wanna preface it by just saying, I have never been in that situation that I feel like it would be right. I've prayed some imprecatory prayers, but I shouldn't have when I prayed them. And so I, I, I've never been in that situation that I feel like it would be justified. But I, I can imagine situations where I think it might. If you were a Jewish Christian, in Poland when Nazi Germany rolled through and after the army came through, here came the SS troops and now you're in this little village and the SS troops stormed the village and they began to pull out every man, woman, son and daughter out of their homes. They began to kill indiscriminately. They began to do unspeakable abuses to, to women. They enslave the survivors and you are absolutely powerless to do anything about it, I think in these sort of extreme hardness of heart moments, these Psalms could have a place. I think they could. And I say it with a lot of fear and trembling, but I think they could in those moments be right prayers off the lips of God's people. Okay, now I'm gonna set that aside now, all that. And if you want more on that, you can email me. I'll give you some stuff this week. But I'm gonna jump to the other side now and try to answer this question. I wanna try to give you five reasons why I think it is important for you and I to read Psalms like Psalm 109 and others. Why it's important for us to read them, wrestle through them, and turn them back into prayers to God. Why is that important? I wanna work through some reasons why that's important. Uh, I wanna give you five of them. Now, I, I wanna say this, just one more disclaimer. This is a different sort of a sermon. Normally, we would take a psalm and we would preach through a psalm. This is not gonna be that sort of a sermon because I'm taking the, the kind of the, the class of songs, psalms that are imprecatory psalms, and I'm trying to make sense of that class of psalms. So we read Psalm 109. We're gonna talk about it quite a bit, but I'm not gonna go verse by verse through it. I'm gonna try to deal with the class of psalm, psalms where these sort of things are happening. So five reasons why it is that we should read imprecatory psalms like Psalm 109. Number one, psalms like Psalm 109 remind us to pray for the plans of the wicked to be foiled. R reading a psalm like Psalm 109 teaches us to pray consistently that the schemes of Satan that are right now underway doing all sorts of evil and wrong things, harming the people of God, harming humanity in general, damaging God's good creation, that we should be a people who are praying against that, praying that God would stop that 
It reminds us that we should be a people praying that the schemes of Satan should be undone by God. Reading Psalm 109 and those like it reminds us that real evil exists in the world and it's causing real suffering. And this real evil and these real schemes need to be prayed against. It's reminding us to pray against these things. And let me just ask you the question, how often do you pray that the schemes of Satan would be foiled? I just take North Korea right now. I mean, we're on the brink of war with North Korea. How often do we just pray, God, we don't even know what all's behind it, how all these things fit together, but we know this, Satan is, is working his way through a bunch of different people to make these sort of things happen. God, would you please stop the plots and ploys of Satan? Would you please do that? When you think about ISIS, how often do we, do we just stop and ask God, God, would you please bring every plot and ploy of every wicked person and of Satan himself, God, would you please foil them all? When you think about what we just saw yesterday in, in Virginia, God, would you please foil the plot of every person that has a racist bent in their body and Satan who stands behind it all? God, would you please, everywhere there is evil, everywhere where there is plotting against you and what you would call good, God, would you foil it? If it's in our country, outside of our country, outside of us, inside of us, God, would you please foil it? But part of what we see when we're reading these Psalms is a reminder to pray to God like that, to pray that the wicked plot would be undone. Here's the second reason why we should read imprecatory Psalms. Not just to remind us to pray that the plans of the wicked would be foiled, but secondly, Psalms like this remind us to pray for the world's darkest suffering. The world's darkest suffering. You can't read Psalm 109 without being vividly reminded that David is suffering. He is being falsely accused and there are a hundred ways he is being wronged here and he is powerless to do anything about it. And part of what we are reminded of when we read Psalm 109 is that is happening in a million different places right now as I speak. And we're reminded to pray for that, that our hearts should be opened up to that. Can you put yourself in the shoes of the Yazidi community in Iraq? They were a group of Christians that fell prey to ISIS in Iraq. And if you know the story, uh, when ISIS came in, they basically surrounded them, cut off their food supply, eventually captured them. And uh, uh, a lot of the infants and the babies, they killed immediately. A lot of the men, they killed immediately. And then they took uh, young ladies, let's just say like eight, nine, 10 years of age to maybe 16 or 17, and they enslaved them. And I, I just read here recently, a young, one of the young girls that was taken captive by ISIS. And uh, as she as she told of the unspeakable abuses done to her dozens of times a day, every day. And that's happening right now as you're listening and I'm talking. And, and part of what reading an imprecatory psalm like this does is it punches through our numbness. It punches through our apathy it takes, us, it takes us out of our secure little lives that we're living and puts us right into the midst of the worst suffering in the world. It opens our heart to people in that where we bleed with them and can pray with them and empathize with them and get in the shoes with them. This is what an imprecatory psalm is meant to do. Help us get into that sort of suffering that's going on right now in the world. 
I mean, part of what an imprecatory psalm just reminds us of is where is God right now in the world? I mean, if you just ask, where is God? The, the last verse in Psalm 109 answers the question, verse 31. Here's where God is. He is standing at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. And the imprecatory Psalms remind us that we should get over along with them where God is. We should join in with them where God is standing right by them in their need. It reminds us that we should pray for the world's darkest suffering. Thirdly, when we read imprecatory Psalms like this, like 109, they remind us to confess our own sin. You know, it's interesting. When I read through Psalm 109, or really any imprecatory Psalm, any of the other 13 or 14 of them, when I read through, through those, I can't stop thinking, but God, you know my own wickedness. You know that it would probably be right for somebody to pray that against me. God, you know who I am. And in this way, these imprecatory psalms invite us to take, to take a deep look at the inner, you know, inner parts of our life. Psalms 109 and psalms like it are meant to do more than give us eyes for the evil around us out there. They are also meant to give us eyes for the evil in us. I want to say that one more time. When you read a psalm like Psalm 109, it is meant to do more than give you eyes for the evil that is out there. It's meant to also give you eyes for the evil that's in here. This is what it's meant to do. Uh, last Thursday, uh, Hannah and I watched a documentary on Princess Diana. I don't know if y'all saw that last Thursday night, but uh, Hannah and I were in it. We were on it. And so if you, you know, know the story, her life ended in a really tragic way one night in Paris. Basically, she was coming out of a hotel. The paparazzi was just relentless. I mean, they were after her in every single moment. So you've got guys on motorcycle following her car, trying to get the latest picture. And as they're kind of, you know, trying to flee from the motorcycle and the motorcycle is trying to catch them to take the picture, uh, the car that she's in wrecks and tragically she dies. Uh, right there one night in Paris. Just a tragic, tragic moment. But it was so interesting to watch as the, as the, you know, the thing we were watching was just unpacking what happened then. And the, the public of England, just kind of the people of England rose up and here was kind of their cry in that moment. They were looking at the people taking the pictures, the paparazzi, and they were saying, it's your fault. You're the one who killed her. How dare you do that? And, and then it kind of turned and they just processed some of that. And it was interesting to watch what they said and kind of how they drew it out. They said, you know, what's interesting is, yeah, the paparazzi, it was relentless. They hunted her and stalked her like she was an animal to get the last picture. Now, why did they do that? Because these big magazines and newspapers were paying them boatloads of money to get those pictures to put them in the newspapers. Now, why was the big magazines and newspapers, why did they want those pictures in their magazines and newspapers? Because the very people looking at the people with the cameras saying, you're the one who killed her, were the ones spending millions of dollars buying the magazines with the pictures. I mean, it was such an interesting moment of just seeing how easy it is to stand over here and say, do you see how wicked you are and not know that you're complicit in the evil yourself? And any moment when you read an imprecatory psalm, there is an invitation for you to take a look at your own heart and ask the question, where am I complicit in the evil and injustice of the world? 
David and the rest of the psalmists, they have a category for unjust suffering. Here is evil and here is injustice and I've done nothing to contribute to it. They have that category, but they also have a category of, yes, there's evil and injustice and I have contributed to it. This is why in Psalm 139, the psalmist says, God search me and know my heart lest there be any evil way in me. And when you read an imprecatory psalm, it's an invitation for you to do that. For you to say, God, know my heart, test my heart, help me see where I am contributing to injustice in the world, either by the things that I do or by the things that I am not doing. God, show me that. Open my eyes so that I can see that. Here's the fourth reason we should pray and read and wrestle through the imprecatory prayers. As we do that, as we read a psalm like Psalm 109, these psalms have a way of showing us how to deal with our own anger. They have a way of showing us how to deal with our own anger. Now, if I were to ask you the question, when you read Psalm 109, what is the central emotion that you see just ooze out of the text? It would be pretty obvious to see we are dealing with white hot anger here. I mean, that is the central emotion that is under the imprecatory psalms. You have a person, David, and David is wide hot in his anger against injustice and the problems around him. Now, a couple of words about anger. Anger is a God-given emotion. Anger in and of itself is not sinful. This is why uh, in Ephesians 4, it says, be angry, but don't sin. There is a category of anger that is not a sinful anger. You can look at injustice and you should get angry about injustice. Anger is an emotion. And like all emotions, it is one way that we can reflect who God is. That's part of what anger is meant for, to show who God is. So, so God is he loves what is good and he hates what is evil. God gets angry when he sees injustice and evil happening, when he sees bad, evil things threatening good things. And when we get angry at things that are threatening good and right things that God loves, we are reflecting the heart of God. But that's not the only thing the Bible says about anger. It also says in Ephesians that we should be angry and not sin. In other words, we can sin in our anger and our dark fallen hearts are very prone to sin in anger. You know, anger left unchecked and undealt with in our hearts often turns poisonous, just spreading acid throughout our veins, showing the very worst parts of, of who we are. Um, anger when well-nursed, Right? And just well-fed as a way of growing into bitterness. And bitterness opens up its mouth and leads us to hundreds of different sins. So there is a real warning with anger. It's a dangerous thing. This is why there's a limit on don't let the sun go down on your anger in, in Ephesians chapter 4. So yes, it's a God-displaying emotion, but it can be, when left unchecked and turned poisonous, one of the darkest, worst emotions among humanity. So here's what that would lead us to, to believe. If we're ever going to live rightfully with God and for God in a fallen world, we have to learn some things about anger. What do we do with anger? How do we process our anger? What, what, what do we do when we feel really, really angry? What do we do? And the psalmist helps us here. When you're reading Psalms like Psalm 109, you're getting to see the psalmist model what he does with his own anger. And, and let me just walk through the three things that you see uh, the psalmist do with his anger. Number one, the psalmist owns his anger. He, he owns it. 
When David dropped the pen to paper and wrote the first phrase of Psalm 109, be not silent, O God of my praise, that is an act of ownership. He is saying, I am angry. I've got a problem right now. And, and this anger is white hot within me. Now, let me just stop and apply that for a moment. I just wonder how many of us this morning need to own our anger. Need to own it. And maybe your anger is a God-centered anger that would be a righteous anger in the Bible. Or maybe yours is what we might call a self-centered anger that really doesn't have anything to do with the ways of God. It has only to do with your way. Someone's blocking what you want in your life. But either way, good or bad anger, one of the first things that has to happen is we have to own that. And I just wonder how many of us need that, that, that we're living and we're so touchy we're so sensitive. We're just kind of itching for a fight. We're just kind of waiting for someone to push our buttons. We're just waiting for a chance to explode on someone. That when we look back over maybe the last week or maybe the last month or maybe the last year, we can just see the relational carnage that our anger has left. And I just wonder how many of us really need a moment before God where we call that what it is. It's anger. And we admit that to God. But, but the psalmist doesn't just own his anger. He prays his anger. So he doesn't get into denial, right? He, he owns it. And then he prays his anger. He prays his hate. Look at verses one through five of Psalm 109. He, the first five verses, he offers his complaint to God. God, this is my problem. My enemies are lying against me. Verse three, they attack me without cause. Verse four and five, they repay my love with hatred. He makes his complaint. Then in poetic and shocking language, he brings his hate to God. He brings and prays his anger up to God. Verse six, appoint a, a wicked man against him. Verse seven, when he is tried, let him come forth guilty. May his days be few, verse eight. May another take his office. Verse nine, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Verse 11, may the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Verse 17, he loved to curse, so let curses come upon him. Verse 18, he clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. What are we seeing here? We are seeing the raw and real David meeting the real God. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing him pray his guts out before God. This is what he is doing. He is pouring out his heart before God. And that's what prayer is, isn't it? Prayer is pouring out your heart before God. And that is exactly what we have David doing. He is taking the emotion he is feeling. In this moment, white hot anger. And he is praying that to God. He's pouring out his heart to God. And what David's doing, we so seldom do. Have you ever noticed in watching people pray that people's prayers have a way of gravitating toward presentability? Toward what they think God would probably want them to say? And then let's just say that. It's not a pouring out your heart to God. Listen to Eugene Peterson comment on this in his book, Answering God, that, that book on the Psalms. He says it this way. He says, it's easy to be honest before God with our hallelujahs. It is somewhat more difficult to be honest in our hurts and it is nearly impossible to be honest before God in the dark emotions of our hate. So what do we do? 
we commonly suppress our negative emotions. Or when we do express them, we do it far from the presence of God, ashamed or embarrassed to be seen in these cursed, stained clothes. I think that describes so many of us. Rather than pouring out our hearts to God, we think, okay, I feel this, but I can't say that. So what can I say? So I'm going to pull my best theological kind of, you know, bow and wrap it around it. I'm going to get it all in a nice gift wrap little box with all the right little sayings and all the right words. And then I'm going to give God what God surely wants to hear. That's how most of us pray to God. And hear me, that is what you call saying prayers. That is not honest praying. And do you know what's so tragic? Saying prayers passes in almost every little Christian circle you're going to find yourself in, except the Psalms. The Psalms are not okay with us just saying prayers to God. The Psalms only are okay with us saying honest prayers before God, with us actually pouring out our hearts to God. That's what the psalmist wants. This is what he's after. See, when I read uh, Psalms 109, here is my first thought. Can you really pray that? I mean, are you serious? I mean, is he going to get struck down by lightning as soon as he utters the last word? Can he really do that? Have you ever thought, just ask yourself the question, what if he doesn't pray it, what happens? What, if, what happens if he doesn't do it? What, if, what happens if he, if he goes for presentability and doesn't pour out his heart to God? I think the answer to that is his hate would never be dislodged and dealt with. If he doesn't pray his hate and his anger up to God, ironically, that anger and that hate will oftentimes turn into the very evil that provoked it. I mean, that's the ironic thing, isn't it? That if we don't do that, that anger and hate often turns into the very evil we are crying out against. I love what one pastor said commenting on this, this moment in David's life. He said, here's what's happening in this moment. David's emotion in this moment, raw anger, drove him to God in a new way. And then when he got there, praying his anger before the presence of God, the presence of God actually began to change David and his emotion. Do you see that? He, he's praying his anger. He's allowing his anger not to drive him away from God, but to drive him to God. And as he comes to God with all that he is, the good, bad, and the ugly, God himself meets David and begins to change David and the way he feels and sees and works in the world. And that's exactly what this psalm is inviting us to do with all of our emotions, in particular, our white-hot anger and hatreds. But if we're ever going to do that, do you know what it requires from us? That we actually feel secure in God's love? That we actually believe that God does love us in spite of us? And do you know one of the hardest things for me to believe? That God loves all of me, not just the good parts of me. That is so hard for me to believe. Our staff has recently done a thing called an Enneagram where it's just trying to get, it's a personality test, but it's a little more than that. And it's trying to show you the ways that you relate to God and other people. And I uh, scored a five and a three on that test. That were my two big numbers. And let me, let me give you some of the weaknesses of my numbers. Just, just hear what it says about me. And, and this is spot on, by the way. It says this about some of my weaknesses. That threes in particular learn to use popularity and the image of success as a way to feel loved and accepted rather than receiving love through vulnerability and trust. Threes are driven by competency, comparison, and competition. 
For a three, the besetting sin is a deceit or, another way to say that, projecting a false image and the underlying emotion that they're trying to solve and resolve is shame. Whereas one, a different kind of group of personalities, desire to be perfect. Threes, kind of who I am, desire just to look perfect. Unhealthy threes relate through performance and perception, striving to be or at least be seen as good enough. Can you imagine how damaging that is in my relationship with Jesus? And I just wonder how damaging it is for us across the room to think about God like this. The only way I could ever come to God is when I have everything put together and I'm feeling okay about the world. As opposed to saying, God, I'm coming to you, pouring out the worst of me, help me. I just wonder how many of us can do that? How many of us feel secure enough in God's love to do that? The, the little thing that we're working through, it goes on to talk about what is the part of the gospel that I need to believe if I'm ever going to do that? Let, let me read what it said. Here's what it said I needed to believe about Jesus. And I totally agree with this, that Jesus loves me and gave himself for me, not my successful, accomplished, perfect image, that I am naked and exposed before him, that he knows the real me with all of my sin and imperfections. And the good news is that he has covered up my shame with his unconditional love and mercy, that I don't have to present myself as accomplished and put together because Jesus really is my identity. Like right now that I'm being transformed by the Holy Spirit into the true self, which bears the image of Jesus. Do you know what I've got to believe and we've got to believe if we're ever going to be honest prayers? is that when God looks at us and the worst of us is present, when God does that, that God still actually loves us. I mean, do you believe that about God? I mean, do you believe the good news of Jesus takes it that far, that the worst of you, God looks through that and still sees a you that he loves in spite of you. This is what the psalmist does. He prays his hate to God. He prays his anger. And then thirdly, he entrusts his anger to God. He entrusts it to God. Notice what David doesn't say. David doesn't say, hey, I'm gonna go kill my enemies. I'm gonna make their wives widows, their, their father, you know, their children fatherless. I'm gonna go take my vengeance out on them. He doesn't do that, does he? No, he, he takes his desire for justice and he entrusts that desire to God. He doesn't take it in his own hands. He says, God, you alone are powerful enough to execute justice. You, are not, you alone are wise enough to do it. You alone have the right to do it. So God, I'm gonna take all of my anger. I'm gonna pray it to you and I'm gonna entrust everything that I think should happen. I'm going to entrust it to you who knows best. Have you done that with your anger? If you said, God, I'm not gonna take it in my own hands. God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it to you and I'm going to entrust it to you. It's one of the greatest acts of faith you'll ever do in your life to entrust your, your, your hatreds to God, your anger to God. And, and in this way, David and Paul agree. When Paul says in Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. See, when we entrust our anger to God, we can lay our heads down at night knowing that no one gets away with anything in this world. Either it falls onto the head of Jesus and Jesus pays for it, or one day it will fall on the, the head of the wicked evildoer you know, person. But no one gets away with anything in this world. So the psalmist is showing us how to, how to deal with our anger. He owns it, he prays it, and then he entrusts it to God. And then lastly, and we'll be finished here. 
Why should we read the imprecatory Psalms? Here's the last reason. They remind us of our need for a savior. They remind us that we really do need Jesus. You do, I do. When you read Psalm 109, it should, it's meant to shock your system. I mean, those curses are really bad. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, that, he, is, he is praying for really bad things to happen to people. They, they should shock us what he's praying for them he, when he curses these evildoers. And as we are shocked by them, it should point us to the final day in human history where Jesus comes back and everyone is held to account and judgment is had. It should point us to that day when human history is going to culminate, when Jesus comes back, not to save in the second time, but to slay in the second time. When Jesus comes back on his white horde with a really big you know, horse, with a really big sword in his hand, and when he comes back, he, yes, he's going to redeem his bride, but yes, he is also going to give justice where every injustice was. He is going to make every wrong right in that moment. And this is what Psalm 109 is showing us. It is a faint picture of the wrath of God that is awaiting. This is what it should remind us of and, and call to mind. It should bring us to a Romans chapter two where, where Paul reminds us that every day we live apart from God, every time we sin, we are storing up day after day, sin after sin, wrath from God that one day that, that wrath of God, the dam is going to break and it's going to fall on our head unless we turn to Jesus. Unless we turn to Jesus. Unless we turn to the one who came to earth, becoming human, walked among us, in every place we stumbled into sin, Jesus stood. In every place we stiffened our neck in rebellion against God the Father, Jesus humbly submitted. And then 2,000 years ago, Jesus crawled up onto a cross, and there on that cross, Psalm 109, every one of those curses fell upon him. Forsaken abandon. Wicked man set against him, Psalm 109. Accuser standing at his right hand, Psalm 109. His days made few, Psalms 109. They, they took all that he had, Psalm 109. There was no one left to pity him, Psalm 109. The imprecatory Psalm, Psalm 109 in particular, they're raging against injustice. And as they rage, rage against injustice, in doing that, they point us to the greatest injustice of all, where Jesus upon the cross drank every last drop of curse for us where he endured every last curse so that you, me, anyone who trusts Jesus will never have to. Amen? Let's pray together. I wanna give you just a moment to allow the spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful and to wipe away what wouldn't be and And as I prayed for this morning and as the Lord was just forming this morning in my own heart, one of the things that I was praying for is that that person, this may be you, that walked in angry, just choked by anger. Today might be a moment where you can own that before the Lord, where you can pray your anger 
to God. Entrust that to God. And allow the real God to meet the real you so that the real you can begin to change and be formed into the image of Jesus. So, oh God, would you help us this morning? God, would you meet us here this morning? Father, will you personally apply the good news of Jesus in those specific places that we need it today? And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.